The members of the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast are participating as private individuals. Their comments do not necessarily reflect the views of the various organizations they work with. Also, anything you hear on this podcast that sounds like advice on aircraft operation is obviously very general. You should always consider your own situation, remember your training, and fly the airplane. But you knew that. It's a long one this week, so plan to listen in stages. Amy Laboda gives Jack, Jeb, and Dave a fascinating education on the exciting contributions that women have made to the past and present of general aviation. We respond to more audio comments from listeners, and we talk about check rides, emergencies, and jumping out of perfectly good airplanes. All this and more on Uncontrolled Airspace, Episode 18. It's long, too long. Oh, Foxtrot, my holding on to the, the outside of the airplane it is not what I would like but to uh, I can engage. Still, I can remember my grandmother's first flight, being five years old and holding her hand, saying, it's going to be just fine. It's a rush like nothing else you'll ever do. I get enough rushes and stuff I do every day. Not like this one, brother. Not like this one. <laughs> so you guys keep doing this. Went, I thought that just went with journalism. <laughs> you guys do this to me every week because I always want to catch a little bit of kind of candid conversation at the very beginning, you know, and then Jeb inevitably says... Or Dave says something weird, and then I can't do it. And so, uh, <laughs> but uh, hey, so well, I haven't said f- yeah. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, here we are again with episode. All right, now that is a weird noise. That that yeah. is my phone ringing. All right. Uh, okay. You want me to mute, or uh, do you guys want to go? Why don't you mute while it's ringing, and then just keep listening, okay? All right, so here we are again with episode number 18 of Uncontrolled Airspace. I'm Jack Hodgson, a freelance writer and new media producer up here in Boston, Massachusetts, and we're together again with the gang, uh, a little bit larger than usual gang this morning. And uh, how you doing, everybody? Spiffy. So far. So far, so far. Uh, With us this morning, uh, Dave Higdon, talking to us from beautiful Wichita, Kansas. Dave is an aviation photographer and a senior editor for Kit Planes Magazine. He's also the U.S. editor for London's World Aircraft Sales Magazine. Morning, David. Happy Thursday. Weekend's coming. It's going to be time to go fly for a lot of folks. Yeah. Yeah. March 1st. We're recording this on the morning of March 1st. Also with us this morning, Jeb Burnside. Jeb is talking to us from Springfield, Virginia. Jeb's a freelance aviation journalist, currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine, and also as a contributing editor to AvWeb Biz. Good morning, Jeb. Good morning, folks. Uh, I get to fly tomorrow, actually, so uh, I'm not going to wait for the weekend. And also with us this morning is uh, Amy Laboda. Amy is uh, talking to us from somewhere in Florida. Uh, Amy is the editor-in-chief of Aviation for Women magazine and a, contrib- and a contributing editor to EAA's Sport Aviation magazine. Good morning, Amy. How you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. How are you today? Good. So, uh, let's see now. we got a huge list of things to talk about this morning, but uh, so maybe we should just dive into these here. Um, uh, one thing we did want to touch on is Amy hasn't been with us for a while. Uh, a couple of episodes, we had a lot of fun talking for a few minutes, a few seconds, a few minutes each, about our earliest flight experiences, you know, sort of what motivated us to learn to fly and, and, and what were those, you know, if there's anything particularly special about those first few few flights. So, Amy, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, earliest flight experiences? How, when did you, when and why did you first learn how to fly? 
Well, uh, if if we're going to stick to learn how to fly, then we'll start with that. <laughs> my father, my father learned how to fly between 1965 and 1966, um, and somewhere in there, I started flying in the back of the airplane with him. I can remember my grandmother's first flight. I can remember being five years old and holding her hand and saying, "It's going to be just fine." <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I can oh, remember. Cool. I can remember taking uh, the yoke of the Aztec and going through a takeoff sequence with my dad without ever being able to see over the top of the <laughs> instrument panel. So that was probably my first IFR zero zero takeoff. <laughs> but I began uh, my flight lessons at about 15 and a half years of age. And um, my flight instructor, God bless her, is still around. She is, she doesn't live very far away from me. What's her name, um, if you're willing to share? Her name is Robley Grelick. Uh-huh. And, uh, and hello, what, Robley, if you're out there. What airport and was this all at? This was all at Page Field in Fort Myers, Florida. Uh-huh. Okay. So, okay. Uh huh. Okay. I learned to fly in a Cessna 152, and then uh, up to a 172 is what I soloed in and went ahead on with my stuff. And I think one of my uh, most memorable flights was a cross country I did where uh, I got to Sebring, and I looked down, and there was some fog down there, but there was also a lot of runway, it seemed like. So I just yeah. landed on the part of the runway that didn't have fog. I thought that was fine. Okay. And I can remember being very annoyed that there was no one there at that time on a Sunday morning to sign my logbook. So I had no evidence Slackers. of having made it there. It's hard to find good help. By the way, now is there a punchline to this story? This, this, it was in fact an airport. I'm hoping it was in fact an airport. In fact, it's a very busy airport. You have your uh, light sport aircraft uh, expo there now every right, year. But right. at the time, there was uh, nothing but the triangled runways and uh, a trailer on the on the field. Ah, that was it. The trailer okay. was the FDO in those days. So anybody who remembers that, uh, and the race you know, let us know. Your memories of Seabrook. Yeah, see, that's what I was afraid you were going to tell us, is that what you actually ended up landing on was the racetrack or something like that. No, no, no. The racetrack wasn't there in those days. Ah, okay. Hmm. It was still part of the airport. Very cool. Very cool. It's really fascinating to listen to people's first flight experiences. Uh, There's so much variety and so many interesting stories there. Um, That's terrific. So, uh, on to a little bit less uh, fun stuff. Uh, there's a bit of news over the last week. Um, in in, uh, in uh, business aviation, or not business, but VLJ, I guess, uh, this Eclipse and Avidine. Business of aviation. Yeah, it's in the business, business of aviation. Of aviation. One story was uh, the that Eclipse and Avidine, who was going to be their aviation, avionics supplier, have decided to part company. Um, anybody have anything? Know anything about this, Jeb? It's sort of your beat. Yeah, uh, it, it's no real surprise, I guess. Um, uh, Eclipse and Avidine have have had some, um, I don't know, mutually uh, disagreeable uh, um, interactions, for lack of a better term, over the last couple of years. Eclipse has routinely and publicly blamed Avidine for delays in in certification and delivery of of the Eclipse 500. Um, so it's it's uh, as I say again, no, no real surprise. Uh, I don't know enough about it uh, to comment on on the the exact nature of the problems that Eclipse has uh, 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 levied against Avidine. Um, it's it's as interesting with, how much parallel it is to the uh, Williams engine divorce. <clears throat> the the uh, Williams engine divorce. For those of you that uh, may not remember back. Uh, about four or four and a half years, uh, 
the Eclipse originally was supposed to use a, a, a new, brand new engine from uh, Williams International. Uh, had some internal heating problems. Uh, wasn't working out well. After several months, uh, Eclipse dumped them without having a replacement uh, picked to move into that slot, and eventually they picked a replacement, which entailed some major, uh, well, some significant redesign of the airplane. Now we're seeing this again with uh, the Avidyne divorce. Mm -hmm. uh, they've dumped Avidyne. Uh, they haven't announced uh, complete replacement for that. Uh, it sounds like they may use multiple vendors to uh, fulfill the AVO system that uh, that they've created for the Eclipse 500 uh, down there in Albuquerque. But uh, we we don't know completely yet. We're we're waiting like the rest of the world to find out. Yeah, um, I don't know. You know. One obvious uh, solution, although a partial one, would be to try to integrate the Garmin 1000 or perhaps the, the Garmin 1200 or whatever the newest product to come out of uh, uh, Garmin might be. Um, <clears throat> but it is interesting. Um, I, you'll start seeing now bifurcation in the Eclipse fleet. There'll be the the uh, the legacy uh, fleet, and then there'll be the the um, whatever the new avionics suite uh, will be. Uh, come down the pike now. Whether or not the Eclipse will go back and retrofit everything, um, yeah, that's, to, that's uh, an interesting. That's an interesting question because yeah. you know, realistically, technically, they've delivered one airplane. Right, right. And uh, we're not even sure that it left Albuquerque. Right, but well, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But uh, um, since the the Avio system is so integrated with the airplane, I think I've in the past described it as an automation system wrapped in an airframe. Um, uh, it'll be interesting to see how they how they pull this uh, sleight of hand off. Um, Avidyne, uh, um, you know, for their for their part, uh, um, they've got a lot of excellent products out there and a lot of um, legacy products that they still support. Uh, as with any new system, especially one as as uh, tightly integrated into the airplane as the as the Avio system is, there will be teething pains. Yeah. So you, um, for the most part, what we've what we've repeatedly heard is software yeah. issues, software right. issues as opposed to hardware issues. Right. Which uh, makes me wonder whether you know they might not want to stick with the displays just for consistency. Mm -hmm. uh, but then that depends on whether the you know, replacement software vendor stuff will work with the hardware. And, uh, well, that that's true, and I hope they get the source code. But uh, um, it seems to me like it's going to be a, a wholesale revamp. I mean, it's hard to yeah. – uh, yeah, you can't sure. change one without changing the other, at least at some level. So mm -hmm. um, uh, more power to them, and uh, um, those of us who follow such things will be watching closely. Yeah, well, and it does once again point out the the in, in enormous risks when a uh, when a, when a program comes along and decides to uh, to try to leverage cutting edge technology at every level. Uh, yeah. Well, know, the, it's the, the it's the risk of starting from a blank piece of paper. Right. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose with a blank piece of paper on everything, power yes, plants, that's my point. systems, yeah, uh, production methods, everything, training, etc. Um, you know, thankfully, indeed, they they did meet their uh, their uh, deadline on delivering an airplane on the thirty first, but uh, a self imposed deadline, I would add. 
but um, you know where do they go from here. You know, I, I got a lot of confidence in, in people at Eclipse. They've got a great team. Uh, they're obviously very well financed. Um, the uh, the trick is going to be pulling all this together and, and making it all uh, work in a timeless, seamless fashion. Um, it'll be interesting, uh, and uh, I'm sure we'll we'll be hearing more about that at Sun and Fun. Yeah, okay. one has to wonder how much more of this the uh, the uh, customer base. Uh, is going to sit for before some of them start to uh, visibly defect to uh, other opportunities in the VRJ uh -huh. line. I can see that happening already, yeah. but it's not necessarily a visible defection. A lot of them are picking up on what technology is available, and they're using uh -huh. excuses such as, well, I'll get myself this jet and get trained on it, and then when mine is finally ready... For instance, uh, I know someone with a serial number 1700 uh -huh. uh, waiting in line. And he said, uh, I'm going to pick up a citation, uh, SP, okay, a 500 series. I'm going to uh -huh. learn to fly that. And then when my jet is ready, I'll uh -huh. move to it. How does it work? I know that I know that if you, if you want to get on the list, you have to write them a check. And, uh, can you just kind of unilaterally say, I want my check back? Or how does that... It, it depends on the deal you've cut. I mean, there's, there's certain um, uh, performance guarantees um, built into their contracts, I would guess, and it kind of depends on which serial number you've bought as to which guarantee you get. Um, I think, again, one of the issues with the early serial numbers, uh, as I understand it anyway, was that uh, uh, some of those performance guarantees were based on Eclipse delivering an airplane by the end of 06, which they pulled off by the skin of their teeth on the afternoon of December 31. Progress um, payments. Yeah, yeah. Um, progress payments coming from the customers back into Eclipse. I think the, uh, uh, as we, I think, discussed uh uh, in, in a previous edition of Uncontrolled Airspace, uh, Vern Rayburn down at NBAA back in October uh, made the public statement that uh, Eclipse will deliver 2,500 aircraft. Um, no, that's not correct. But 500 aircraft by the end of uh, 07. Still a varying, uh, uh, you know, a, a, even big at number. the time, even at the time, you could have heard a pin drop yeah. in the room. Now well, it, here we are, it, five months later, and uh, it's it's even less likely that they'll make that. Not not suggesting that they won't, but uh, uh, this will truly be uh, something to watch very closely. It'll yeah, be very entertaining. Yeah, really. Also, there, there's some new hills to climb on this. Yeah, and, uh, right. You know, and, and it bears being pointed out here that. While this little hiccup with Avidine goes on, the production lines in Albuquerque didn't come to a screeching halt. Right. You know, they're continuing to friction stir together, friction stir well together airframes. Uh, they're continuing to assemble aircraft. Uh, they're just not getting completed at quite the rate that they need to yeah. right now. And, uh, you know, we're not hearing about deliveries. Uh, been two months since we heard about the last delivery. Uh -huh. So, Eclipse floated a press release within the last week to ten days regarding um, construction of a new facility at the Double Eagle Airport, the outlying General Aviation Airport at, at yeah, over on the west side of town. And uh, one kind of wonders if they're going to just kind of store airframes there until they can get the uh, the electronics sorted out and put them all together. But. Uh, um, um, Again, more power to them. Wish them a lot of luck. They've, they've, uh, 
they're, they're climbing a very tall hill here, and the problem is uh, they don't know how much further they have to go to the top. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll be keeping an eye on this as time goes on. And uh, moving on. Time goes by. Moving on. Uh, Amy, you were uh, in attendance at the a couple weekends ago, I believe it was, at the Women in Aviation International Conference. And uh, I read a couple of interesting stories on the net about this. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what went on there and uh, give us the sort of uh, the sense of it all? Absolutely. In fact, I wasn't just in attendance. I was one of the principals running the show. So ah, okay. I'd be delighted to tell you more about it. Please do. Um, the 18th <laughs> Annual International Women in Aviation Conference has become uh, the place to go if you are looking for a job in any place in aviation or aerospace. I mean, we sold out our exhibit hall. Not only did we sell out the exhibit hall this year, we sold out the annex to the exhibit hall. Now, okay, it's not NBAA. We had 214 spaces sold, and we were ecstatic, as you might imagine. But what I did do is I sent one of my writers for Aviation for Women, and I do a show daily at, at the show. I sent her through the exhibit hall to find out who had human resources personnel in the booth with them. And she came back. She was astounded. She said almost everybody in there was hiring. They yeah. had an HR person in the booth. They were taking resumes. They were interviewing people on site for jobs. That's and that's great. just astounding. And this goes all the way down to Women Fly, looking for somebody to help out at Oshkosh. I mean, and that's a, a T-shirt and, uh, and, and Bobbles and Chachka's vendor. God bless them. Beautiful Bobbles and Chachka's. Amy, real quick, where, sure. where, was, where was the convention? And The convention this year was held at Disney's Coronado Springs Resort, but the convention moves every year. The convention and the organization has an interesting history. Uh, it, it began as a consortium in Prescott, Arizona, on the campus of Embry-Riddle back in 1990 and it was a, a group of intellectuals getting together to talk about the issues around women in aviation and at the time you know and and even today Embry-Riddle historically has a very low count of women among its faculty and among its students um, I must say that it's tripled in the in the two decades practically since since that first meeting that was 150 souls and the next year we did it again, and it was 300. And the next year we did it again, and it was moving away the whole time from being that group of intellectual kind of papers and things like that into being a much more dynamic um, melding of, of women who worked in maintenance, who worked in management, who worked in um, HR, who worked on the line, um, getting together and having a chance to see each other and talk to each other. In fact, kind of became a good old girls club. And then one day somebody said, how can I join? And we said, join what? <laughs> <laughs> so the membership organization began back in 1995, some five years after, five conferences down the line, and has grown to the point where uh, we're currently more than 7,000 members and we're worldwide we actually have a european chapter a nigerian chapter um canadian chapters as well as uh things going on all over the world and uh some 50 chapters uh, well maybe not all 50 so more than 40 in the u.s alone 
So instead uh, of instead of it being the usual, an organization creates a conference. This was a conference that created an organization. That's exactly right. Yeah. And somewhere in 1996, uh, somebody said we'd like to give out some scholarships. We'd like to give out some type ratings. And this was one of our airline sponsors, and we said, "Yeah, heck, let's do it." Well, that's grown to more than five million dollars in scholarships being given away. Awesome! And that's just a little over a decade now. So we're quite excited. It was a little under four hundred thousand dollars in scholarships that were given away at the banquet uh, just two weekends ago. Yeah, I was and looking at the list. That's becoming and it's just yearly. Amazing. Oh yeah, I mean, and and then we'll get an airline who decides that their scholarship applicants for their 737 type rating or MD80 rating are so good that we'll just hire, we'll just hire the top three uh, percent of the applicants for the scholarship. We'll just hire them. They don't need a scholarship; they need a job. Wow, that's true. Let me, let me ask happens. you this, Amy. What what is there? I've often wanted to attend the conference just to kind of see what it's like. I mean, do I have to wear a skirt and a wig to get in, or what's the <laughs> no, what, what's the deal? Fact, you know, in fact, that, women in aviation is not exclusive. It's not exclusive to women. Uh, we have male members. Uh, we are very different from the ninety nines in a couple of key ways. One, we're not just about pilots, though. We have surveyed our membership and discovered that eighty four percent have pilot certificates. That's not how 84% make a living, and a lot of our, our members are air traffic controllers, flight attendants, um, mechanics, ramp personnel, airport management, um, dispatchers. We have a large contingent of dispatchers among, and the men who belong to women in aviation, it's an interesting uh, group. They either support the idea of diversity in aviation, and understand that, that a diverse workforce is a more creative um, workforce, mm -hmm. and or they are young men who realize that when they go to the Women in Aviation Conference, they stand out. Uh -huh. And they know that to get a job, they yeah. stand out. Yeah. So Nate, you, you talked a little bit about the exhibits portion of the conference. I'm assuming that there was also a conference part of the conference in terms oh, of like lectures and seminars. Can you tell us a little bit about the types of talks that took place there? Absolutely. We had Rear Admiral Wendy Car Carpenter as our banquet speaker. Uh, for our general sessions, we had the finance director of Rockwell Collins UK, Jane Middleton. Will Whitehorn, who was delightful, and I got to sit with him at dinner in his kilt. Um, he's the, <laughs> See, he, he was wearing a skirt. Uh, there you go. There yeah. you go. <laughs> he knows how to dress. Um, but uh, Virgin Galactic. Uh, for instance, uh, we have uh, a, a marvelous condition. Bonnie Dunbar, who is the CEO of the Seattle Museum of Flight, was one of our speakers. We also had nearly 40 breakout sessions in the afternoons on Friday and Saturday. And on Thursday, we have uh, Aerospace Educators Workshop where we invite the teachers from the surrounding area. And we do this every year, no matter where we go. We will teach up to 500 teachers from the surrounding area how to use aviation in the classroom to motivate students in math and science. So we have a curriculum that we run and we give them a box lunch and then invite them into our exhibit hall in the afternoon. So it's much more than a job fair, an exhibit hall, a chance to win scholarships. It's also um, a mentoring and networking event, absolutely. 
no yeah. question about it. And, oh. and it runs the gamut from, you know, dress for success to uh, the the virtual flight surgeons in aviationmedicine.com who have partnered with us to help bring our members uh, good advice about how to keep their their medical health, whether they're a mechanic or an ATC controller or a pilot. Does any of this does any of this um, information material get posted on the net after the fact? Are there any abstracts or maybe even videos or audios or? Well, we are we are working on our technology there. We are a volunteer organization with mm-hmm. seven paid staff for those seven thousand plus members. Yeah. So um, the answer is is there is a lot that's been posted on the web. We have a, a very dynamic uh, backdoor, which is to say members only section of the website. Um, where our members are able to get get to each other and talk and do that mentoring all year round, um, do that networking, help each other get jobs, etc. But uh, right now we're working on the first of the audio and visual side of that. You're gonna, uh, you're gonna do a podcast? Picture soon. Uh, well, we haven't talked about doing a podcast. And do you yet. need a producer to do it? <laughs> hey, hey, hey! <laughs> this sounds good, Jeff. We'll talk about this. Yeah, soon. okay. We, we know where Anyhow, you can find uh, one. We often did the conference, this year we did the conference a little early, but typically the conference goes uh, in conjunction with Women's Hi- Women History Month because we have a Pioneer Hall of Fame where we induct uh, women who we feel and who have been elected through the year uh, were pioneers in helping uh, women in aviation because, you know, women have been a part of aviation all along. That's right. You were telling us a little bit, but first of all, I'm curious, so were there new inductees this year? There were. And if so, who? We we inducted Deanna Brasseur, who is in the Canadian military and was the first woman in the Canadian military to get her wings and fly fighter aircraft. We inducted Iris Critchell, who was an Olympic swimmer in the 1936 Olympics, but went on to be a pioneer aviatrix and flew everything. And uh, she's just a dynamo, lovely lady. She was in WASP, and, and, and from there on out, she never stopped flying, even after the WASP were sent home. Um, and that's true of quite a few of those women, quite I bet. frankly. Oh, um, we also in, inducted post, posthumously uh, Maria Marvant, who was a pioneer French woman and flew from the very beginnings of powered flight. And uh, she set records in Europe before we were keeping track of records. And, uh, I mean, it's really exciting when you look at it. it. It'll blow you away to know that, you know, the first woman to design and build an aircraft on record was 1906. And that was E. Lillian Todd. That's great. And, so tell, tell us a little bit more about the, the uh, what's it called, Women in, Hist- Women in Aviation History Month? Yeah, well, it's actually the Women's History Month. Women's, okay, on, I'm sorry. Guys. You don't know it's, it's Women's national. History Month? <laughs> it's national. And Just uh, a dumb guy, I'm sorry. Please educate uh, me. No, 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 I didn't say it, you did. Send I had pants and pantyhose. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, basically, we like to make sure that people people do understand uh, what's what's been going on in the world and that and during Women's History Month and we will have a conference again next March. Next March it's going to be in San Diego at the Town and Country Resort. Do come. I think you really enjoy that if yeah. you like golf. Uh, but but one of the things I love golf, just golf. golf doesn't love me. That's the problem. <laughs> Watch for Jim. He'll be the hairiest legs there. What are the dates? Uh, no, what? I don't know about that. <laughs> are the specific dates for next year been set? Yes, March 13th through 15th, 2008. 
in San, in San Diego. Diego. And uh, we're really looking forward to a strong military presence while we're there, too. You know, the U.S. Air Force Reserves have been a tremendous help to us. They make terrific volunteers. They come in almost 300 strong. Uh, the, the, ne the next biggest contingent is the Boeing group. Boeing sends a tremendous number of people, and Cessna sends a huge group of people to our conference. Um, but but uh, the military is just so wonderful to us. And they help us. In fact, they've cut a wonderful uh, DVD for us. So there is some audiovisual. We just haven't haven't progressed to the web yet. Uh, and, and so what we try and do uh, through our online resources on our website, wai.org, is help people to get a sense of how long women have been involved in aviation. And the answer is they have been since the since the first hot air balloon. So uh, and 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 worldwide, Germany, France, you know, Turkey, Japan, China, uh, throughout the entire decade of aviation, which would be the 1900s. Would you not agree? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Oh, there's that telephone again. There's Bear's that telephone pointing out again. here that you don't have to be a lady pilot. You don't have to be a man pilot. You don't have to be a mechanic, air traffic controller, dispatcher, any of the above to join Women in Aviation International. But if you aspire to work in those fields, uh, it's a good place to start. That is correct, Dave. That is absolutely correct. And and there's opportunities. The other thing I wanted to let people know is those opportunities are for our, our members, which means that as a, as a guy, you can join and you can win a scholarship. You uh -huh. can win a scholarship. In fact, Craig Johnson did this year. One of our uh, scholarship groups decided that they would open up their scholarship to people who attended the conference. And so they accepted resumes for their scholarship at the conference. And anybody who was there had the opportunity to win. Yeah. So that was a very, very exciting situation. Very exciting. Very exciting. What, kinds of jobs, what kinds of jobs do uh, companies typically uh, look to fill conference. I, I have to tell you that there is no limit to the kinds of jobs, from flight attendants to managers to pilots. Uh, lots of pilots getting getting hired at the conference. Are we talking? Dispatchers. We're talking we're, airlines. We're talking yes, regional carriers. We're talking we're corporate operators, 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 everything. Interesting. Everything. everything. Cool. So you were. Shop. Amy, you were hinting earlier that uh, that there were there have been some women throughout history or or, or these days who uh, we might be surprised to hear were our aviators. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, uh, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, for instance. Did you know that she'd set a record in her own right? She's the article. The, I think it was in Air and Space or Smithsonian um, that recently on her. But go ahead. Yeah, I, uh, pretty much. Pretty much, I think that uh, people forget that Anne was a pilot, that uh, that Charles taught her to fly, and that she set most of the records with him. She's also uh, the first woman glider pilot in the United States. Huh. Uh, she holds that record all to herself. Wow, I didn't and, know that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, she did some some incredible flying in China after the the big floods in the uh, 1930s when, uh, when they were doing uh, rescue efforts. Uh, and and uh, the, the photography is all taken by Charles, but the flying was all done by Anne. Oh, wow. So, 
you know, that's that's one that's person who people people don't think about. Uh, people don't think about Tadishi Hayodo of Japan, 1922. She received her pilot's license. So, wow. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it it and and it it surprises people to realize that women have been flying all over the world. Ruthie too, the first woman pilot in the Chinese army. That was 1932. So, you know, Ellen Shaw Carter received her helicopter rating and get this 1947. Hmm. Okay, uh, when was the helicopter That's going to say there were hardly any helicopters. 1948. Back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, my my point is, my point is right down to to, to Marge Piper helping, you know, to create the nose wheel aircraft. Mm -hmm. People don't realize that women in Olive Ann Beach, of course, this. running that company and for a number. That's of exactly years. right. Olive Ann yeah. Beach ran that company and uh Mrs. Mall, June Mall. Oh, yeah. You know? Uh, so, so we, we, we sometimes think of the name. We did. We don't realize that it wasn't the woman behind the man. Even it was the woman doing the same thing and standing side by side in a partnership. It was the woman in front of the man. Well, every now and again, the woman had the common sense in yes. the partnership. That's right. Well, the man's smart enough to know better. Yeah. 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 Well, that's great okay, stuff. So Thank you for educating us about that. That's very uh, much. Uh, that, that's fascinating stuff, and uh, it, it's a good thing to keep in mind. March one, Aviators Women's History Month. Time to go out and show a, a, a lady friend a little bit about flying. Just try to remember that uh, we're half the population, but only six percent of the pilots. That's a current tremendous potential pilots. And and aviators out there, so go out and uh, definitely take take a young woman for a ride in an airplane. There you go. There you go. Moving on. Uh, so uh, let's see now. Lis listener mail, listener feedback. Uh, first of all, I want to say that we've gotten a couple more uh, pieces of feedback uh, in iTunes. Uh, if you go to our listing in iTunes, um, and you know, I, I I have one of the biggest egos in the world, but listening to our podcast last time, I even started to get a little embarrassed at all these these you know. Very 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 nice, very very generous comments that we were reading, and so I'm going to. Are very generous, and, and we're very very appreciative of yeah. all that. Keep so I, I'm going to hold off on reading each and every one of them, but I do want to thank uh, the the folks who have been adding feedback about the podcast. It's been, you know, it's it's thrilling and kind of mind boggling for me to say that it's been universally unanimously positive so far, and that's really gratifying. Oh, almost. But well, I mean, the iTunes feedback was. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, you know, and uh, you know, we we've tried to make it clear all along that we welcome uh, uh, you know constructive critical feedback as well. So, uh, um, but one way or the other, thank you to everyone for leaving us the iTunes feedback and the all sorts of feedback. And it's, it's gratifying, it's humbling, it's enlightening, and it helps us uh, produce a better podcast. Yeah. It's it's rejuvenating. Also, it, it makes uh, um, makes this a lot more worthwhile. It's equal. It's, it's it's at least two cups of coffee worth. That's right. And so we've now we've been starting. Finally, uh, it was a little slow getting started, but we're now starting to get a steady stream of audio comments of people calling our our listener line uh, and leaving us a little uh, voicemail, if you will. And uh, we got uh, we actually got four new ones. Uh, we're not going to play them all today, but uh, we. My life. 
Yeah, we got four audio comments to, since the last episode, and uh, we, we do want to listen to a couple of them. Uh, listeners have made some interesting points and, and asked us some questions that I think we're going to respond to. Um, the first one is from Jim in Austin, Texas, and uh, why don't we just listen to that one, and then we can talk a little bit about uh, Jim's questions and comment. Hi, this is Jim Howard in Austin, Texas. just finished listening to number 17, enjoyed it a lot. I would like to uh, add to your uh, comments regarding the fellow from Minneapolis who feels like since he's a VFR pilot, doesn't use much in the way ATC, that that he doesn't uh, feel like user fees will affect him that much. I'd like you pointed out that of course the fuel tax goes up 70 cents, and he still might want to change the certificate, get a medical, file a flight plan, or call flight service, even if he's only VFR in the country. However. He needs, we also need to think about the secondary effects of user fees. The next time that gentleman uh, rents an airplane, he needs to look at that rental operation and say, even though I'm only VFR, how much is this rental F, uh, rental operator, the FTO, how many of his airplanes are instrument rated, how many of his customers do need to have the ability to file instruments or at least use the ATC system in the larger places where you run up the user fees. I suspect if he's renting, he'll find that that FEO will probably not remain in business after user fees uh, if he has to pass all those costs on. Uh, it's a good chance that by driving away the, the, mar- the marginal customers who can afford to fly as it is now but can't afford to fly when you have to pay 25 or $50 to fly near Class C, uh, it will put the rental place under. But suppose the fellow then says, well, I don't really care because I don't rent my plane. I own my own plane. Uh, well, I'd like him, the next time he takes his plane to a, his shop, I'd like him to look at the other planes his mechanic is working on. How many of those other planes are instruments, planes that are typically flown on instruments that typically do use the ATC system, whose owners are instrument rated, and who very well may have to give up their airplane if the costs rise to a prohibitive degree, as is very possible with user fees. He's likely to show up to have his plane worked on and find the mechanic is now out of business because there's not enough VFR, country, day, clear weather, never talk to anybody on the radio pilots to keep a mechanic or an FBO in business. He's liable to find his fuel pump shut down because nobody's, not enough people are buying the fuel, particularly the bigger operators who would use a lot of it. So I think when you got to look, when you talk to people about user fees, even if, as a pilot, they are not affected that much, they can afford 70 cents a gallon more for gas, and they don't ever talk to anybody and only fly on nice days in the pattern, they've got to understand that all the infrastructure, even that pilot depends on, is likely to go away if user fees come into exist. And of course, the bottom line for the government is they'll make less money, not more. Uh, why they, they're, like, they're like a lemonade stand where they want to make a little more money, so instead of charging 50 cents for lemonade, they're charging, going to charge $5.00 and expect us to sell the same amount of lemonade. Well, it doesn't work in the real world, and it won't work in general aviation. Uh, keep up the good work, guys. Love your show. Thank you, Jim. That's pretty interesting. Uh, what do you guys think about Jim's comments about uh, user fees? Uh, Jim, and- Jim's, Jim's spot on. Um, and uh, uh, anybody in the punchline, of course, anybody who doesn't think that they'll be flying IFR or using the air traffic control system <clears throat> excuse me, in some fashion, um, they may be right. They may not have to directly. They, they may not be directly impacted uh, by user fees down the road, but they will certainly be 
uh, impacted. They won't have to pay them out of pocket, but they will certainly be impacted in their flying, in the prices they pay for uh, renting aircraft, for aircraft maintenance. Um, there's already what I would call a, uh, a brain drain, if you will, um, in, uh, in the industry with respect to the maintenance and operation of older aircraft. Um, a lot of people know how to fly Cirruses and, and, uh, and new Skyhawks and, and things like that, but no one really knows how to maintain, say, a 50-year-old Beechcraft. Uh, um, those, those skills are going by the wayside, and as costs increase, people are going to be throwing in the towel. Well, and, not to uh, not not to not to disagree with on. you on everything here, dude. But uh, uh, even a even a VFR only pilot who never uses flight service, never uses ATC, is going to get whacked by aspects of this proposal because. Of well, the, I don't see that the, as a disagreement. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. Uh, the fees for uh, medical certification right. that uh, they want to raise, the fees for getting a pipe. Uh, a, paper pilot's license or the new plastic license that they want to increase. Uh, fees for registering an aircraft that will ripple through, as the, as the caller pointed out. Uh, there's really no part of this proposal that any of us can escape if it goes through as, as proposed. Yeah. Right. Uh, if it goes through as proposed, we will have issues just like Canada and just like Europe. Uh, absolutely. It, it will happen that way. Right on and the money. It will it, it's going to it's going to affect safety. Our safety yeah. records are going to decline. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, our activity levels are going to decline. Yeah, our business uh, levels are going to decline. Our population is going to decline. Airports will continue to decline. Aircraft sales will decline. Uh, the only beneficiaries in this, and uh, you know, and and I don't want to beat this horse too hard because I beat it every bloody week. But the only beneficiaries in this. Are the commercial one part one twenty one airlines, and this represents a huge cost shift from their pockets to ours, and well, a huge competitive shift from uh, business aviation in particular, uh, nibbling away parts of their prime grade A customers. That's the first class and business class, mm -hmm. and walk up passengers. Uh, who've been slowly moving off to fractionals, charters, and jet ownership. Uh, you know, it's a way to, to, to help stop that bleed. Yeah. Now, Dave, you posted on uh, on someplace I saw recently. You you called our attention to a number of different ways that people can uh, make their feelings known. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, Dave? Absolutely. Well, if we uh, if we take a look at uh, the uh, uncontrolled airspace dot com slash uh, fodder our blog site I posted links there to three different uh, three different organizations that have specific information and contact help and even letter templates set up for people to contact their uh, uh, respective lawmakers now, we'll Remember put the Congress and their uh, two senators and uh, whether you belong to any of these groups uh, uh, is not important yeah well, now, we'll put the specific URLs on the webs uh, in the show notes but can you tell us what those three different organizations were well the National Business Aviation Association and uh, and it's geared uh, to uh, to give voice to the uh, to the people who use aircraft in the course of their business or you know their corporation uh, and of course our good friends at the aircraft owners and pilots association and our, our our good friends up in Oshkosh Wisconsin at the experimental aircraft association and there is a coalition 
of uh, general aviation groups that's banded together to uh, fight the uh, uh, the FAA and Air Transport Association proposals. So there are multiple ways for you to make your voice heard, multiple ways uh, you know, saying, I don't know who my congressman is, which is an unforgivable thing in civics class to begin with. Uh, that's not an excuse. The help is out there. The time is now, and it's probably going to be a time again next month and next month because we're just coming out of the starting gate in a process that's going to run all the way through the summer. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, check the uh, show notes for this episode and also the Uncontrolled Airspace blog for more information about that. We also got an audio comment from Brian in uh, Reston, Virginia. Let's play that one now. Yeah, uh, uncontrolled airspace. This is uh, Brian from uh, Reston, Virginia. Uh, I've been a listener to your uh, uncontrolled airspace uh, podcast, I think, ever since the first episode, or very nearly the first, when I caught you guys on iTunes and uh, have been following ever since. I really love the podcast. You guys do a great job. I'm a student pilot. I've uh, soloed and so forth. I'm getting very close to going for my private pilot uh, check ride. And I must say that you guys uh, really formed for me sort of like a uh, little hangar flying or flying club or something. I get so much uh, good information from you guys, and I really appreciate it because I don't have an opportunity otherwise to sit around a lot with uh, pilots and talk and hear all the stories and so forth. As I am getting close to uh, going for a private pilot uh, certificate, uh, one of the things I would really be interested in, if you could devote some time in one of your upcoming shows, would be uh, all about the, the check ride. What should one expect of the, of the, um, of the inspector, of the, uh, uh, you know, the guy giving the check ride on behalf of the FAA, even if one goes not for an FAA inspector, but rather a... Uh, privately licensed inspector. Uh, what kinds of things should one expect? What kind of an attitude? Do they have to fail a certain number? Is this, uh, is this sort of a, uh, what kind of a, a challenge is this um, in terms of quantity and other uh, things that, that maybe one should know about before one goes for the check ride? In addition to, of course, as one will study hard and uh, learn all the learn all the things that one should and hopefully be able to perform all these uh, aeronautic uh, exercises in the process. So thanks. Great job on the Uncontrolled uh, Airspace podcast, and thanks very much. Uh, I keep listening to you. See ya. Hey, Brian. Thank you. Three initials for you, Brian. PTS, Papa Tango Sierra, stands for Practical Test Standards. It's a little it's a little booklet that you can get it at your probably at your pilot shop or through Sporties or somebody, and it's uh, available on the internet at the FAA website. Available online, uh, and it outlines what the uh, what the examiner is required to uh, to look at points that they're supposed to cover suggestions. Uh, you study the PTS for the oral and the check ride, and uh, and it, you may not ace it, but you'll come through it just fine. Uh, and I've never heard of, uh, of examiners being required to fail a certain number, although I know a couple of examiners that seem to feel that way. Well, yeah, that's a myth. Well, well you know, let me ask this question first. Are, are any of us here uh, CFI? I know I'm not. Yes, I, thought, I, I thought Amy. I thought Amy, you might yeah. be. So Amy, yeah. tell us about that. I mean, what's your, been your experience with sending uh, primary students off to uh, the check ride? When you have a well-prepared primary student, the experience is always a positive one. But, right. but 
it's your responsibility as the flight instructor to make sure that you've had a conversation with and you vetted the designated examiner that you choose to use. Don't set your primary student up for a problem. Let me tell you the story about a primary student I had who was eight and a half months pregnant when it was oh, time God. for her check ride. Okay. Now, I got to tell you that this woman was going to make a certain impression as she walked in the room. <laughs> I needed to take the time to call the examiners and find the one who didn't care and went ahead and gave her a check ride. She did great on the check ride, and she delivered her baby a week and a half later. That's okay? Newly so, minted pilot and a newly minted mom all in the same oh, week. God bless, exactly. But my point is that you're doing your student a disservice if you don't take the time to understand yeah. who the designated examiner is and to match personalities. I'm not saying you're trying to get the guy who's just going to sign them off. Right. I'm no. saying no. you want to you have a fair and, and a pleasant experience for that student. Think of all the money they're spending. Yeah. So from the, from the perspective of the student, um, the, I guess we would encourage them to work with their instructor to really kind of make sure that, you know, that they're comfortable the instructor has kind of prepared the ground for them. I mean, is that a good way for the student to go? Well, um, yes and no. I mean, the student has to take some responsibility here also. Um, surely the, the, the instructor, if he or she has done their job right, has not only prepped the student with the skills and the knowledge to get through the practical test, but has also emotionally prepared him or her um, for, and basically told him or her what to expect, how this process will go, um, what what sequence it will it will come in normally, uh, what to do, but more importantly, what not to do. Um, in my experience, and, and I've got kind of a checkered history on check rides. Um, <laughs> there's there's a uh, uh, you know, you, you want to play it by the book. You want to uh, uh, study the PTS, uh, make sure that you're prepared to deal with all of the possibilities that the PTS poses, but then stop. You don't want to go beyond the PTS. You don't want to volunteer things. You don't want to um, um, get yourself in a situation where um, you've you've gone outside of this this envelope, if you will, and into uncharted territory. Uh, that's when the, uh, the the examiner will will uh, trip you up. Will start querying you, as is his responsibility. This is not a uh, a double indemnity thing. This is not a, a, a gotcha kind of exercise. Each party in the check ride has a responsibility. The student has a responsibility to to demonstrate he or she can exercise the privileges of a private pilot. The examiner has the responsibility of verifying that that talent and that experience exists. Um, as an aside, uh, Brian, um, you and I live fairly closely together. Uh, uh, we're both in Northern Virginia. Um, if you're listening to this, if you hear this, please uh, use the uncontrolledairspace.com website. Drop me an email. I'd be happy to, you know, share some thoughts with you offline. Uh, I, I obviously would not want to get into a situation in which I would contradict your instructor, but uh, I'd be happy to chat with you some more about, you know, some local experiences and, and things like that. So don't feel like uh, you're doing this in a vacuum. Uh, and uh, again, please feel free to avail yourself of that opportunity. Um, I, I think the bottom line here is that uh, 
certainly the check ride is a, a rite of passage, if you will, but it's also uh, a necessary experience. It's also a learning experience, uh, not only for the, for the uh, pilot candidate, but for the examiner. Um, he or she should, uh, both parties, I should say, should, should come away from the check ride experience uh, better for it. And, uh, and take, uh, it's take not something deep, to be feared. Take a deep breath, Brian. I mean, what Jim yeah. just said about this is not something to be feared was, was my next point. Is to, you know, this, this is part of the learning experience. Uh, and in my own experience with check rides, uh, they've always proven to be far less traumatic than my expectations in the hours leading up to sitting exactly down with right. the examiner. That said, I'm, I wouldn't want to go through. I wouldn't want to go through my instrument check ride again. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> although, although you may have to one of these days. Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely due for uh, uh, an, an instrument proficiency check, but uh, that's fortunately not the same as another check ride. Right. Um, no, that, that's good, exactly good right, luck, Brian. Keep at it. Get that. Get that practical test standard. Uh, you know, keep it in your flight bag next to your logbook. Uh, you know, what's in there is the is the material that uh, the the examiner is going to draw from to uh, to uh, check your skills and your competency. Uh, so if you study that, there'll be no surprises. If you're competent at that stuff, it'll all be stuff that you've seen before. Yeah. One, one final thought for sure. Brian and anybody else about to, to go for a check ride. Um, look at it as an adventure. Look at it as an opportunity, a learning experience. Don't look at it as a chore. Don't look at it as a hurdle or, or a stress-producing uh, endeavor. Um, even if you don't uh, pass the check ride, you will have the opportunity to do it again. It is it is not the end of the world. It is uh, something that you should sit back and 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 look forward to and and revel in after it's uh, if it's accomplished. And and of course, best of luck to Brian and anybody else about to go for a check ride. Well, and yeah. after it's done, it becomes part of your history that uh, you can exactly. share with somebody. It, it's right up there with the first solo and and uh, um, except uh, you don't lose the shirt tail. Right, the first smooth landing, things like that. It, it's, That's right. Uh, the rite of passage. Well, thank you to Jim and to Brian for uh, sending in the audio comments. We uh, uh, again, we love getting this feedback either by uh, email or by audio comment, uh, and so please keep it up. Send us more. So send us your feedback. We love it. Moving on. Let's see now. So this is an interesting story. Uh, maybe a bigger story than we than I'm giving it credit for here. But uh, the the uh, DFW t- uh, a controller slash supervisor uh, who refused to grant an emergency request from an airliner. Uh, yeah, that's, oh, that, man. that's just uh, inexplicable uh, from what we know about this. First of all, this is something in August uh, involving a, uh, uh, an American uh, Airlines jet uh, with passengers aboard. Um, the crew um, told the controllers that they had an emergency. They used the word on the, on the frequency. They had an unknown amount of fuel aboard. They wanted an expedited landing against the flow at uh, Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Um, The controllers kind of hemmed and hawed and basically denied the request for the expedited against the flow landing. The supervisor told the controller on the station to put him in the flow for runway 31C 
and the uh, straight in direct shortest route to the ground for the American Airlines crew was runway 16 Charlie uh, so instead of getting on the ground in just a couple of minutes they had to go with the flow and anybody that's been into DFW knows that even if you short circuit that a little bit that's a lot longer way in than the direct when you're coming from the opposite right. direction now well, to they- the go ahead Amy I was going to say, did you guys listen? Uh, I listened closely to um, to the commentary the other day and and the actual tapes, and uh, there were a couple of interesting things I heard. Yeah, um, go ahead. One, one, it was clear that they wanted to be on the ground at DFW. Yeah. Because the uh, the second controller who handled them actually said, if you need to get on the ground that fast, I can offer you a closer airport. But he would not give them... One seven C, uh, the runway, which was very very interesting little tidbit that just kind of squeezed in there. If you need to get on the ground that fast, I can offer you a closer airport. And of course, the the pilots said no. We need to land at DFW. Well, it's it, you're absolutely right, Amy. Uh, there other airports were available. It's not known. Uh, and they didn't go into detail on the frequency if they had an operational issue with respect to choosing a different airport. Um, by the time, you know, I, I forget which which aircraft type this was. It was a 7.5 or an MD-80 or, or what seven it was. Five. It was seven a 7.5. Yeah. But by the time they figured out that they had a, a fuel quantity issue, they might have had some other issues or might have suspected they've had some other issues. And uh, choosing DFW... Uh, longer runways, better support facilities, uh, and clearly uh, being one of their stations um, in, in support of uh, any passenger needs after the landing is probably not that bad a decision on their part. They have, you know, not, not to defend an airline crew, but they have a lot more going on than just flying the airplane. I yeah. agree with you, Jeb. I think that the problem was that I personally felt like um, they weren't, assertive enough right with the controller. I don't, I, I, we're in 100% agreement yeah um, I mean I, that may be the lesson for those of us who fly everyday airplanes uh, the whole and this is a lesson and I've never had to use this lesson but a lesson that I learned early on from both instructors and other you know pilot mentors was uh, you know don't use it lightly but if you're in a jam Use the you say I'm declaring an emergency, and and the thing I was taught is don't be kind of vague about this. Don't be kind of right. hesitant. You know, be really say you know Cessna one two three. I'm declaring an emergency. All right, and once you've done that, am I? That's uns- all you have to do. And my understanding yeah. is that the, is that the controllers are anxious to help you, but there are certain things that they can only do once you say the words. Right. And and so once you say I'm declaring an emergency, they suddenly have a lot more leeway to help you out. And to the FAA's credit, in this Dallas Fort Worth situation, from what I've read, that supervisor was the only person in the world who thought who wasn't horrified by what happened here. I mean, I heard stories that that you know other controllers instantly were horrified by this. The FAA pretty quickly came down and said that we got to do some training here. Um, you know, th- this was. I mean, I, I don't know. It's a terrible situation. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out badly. But I, I get the feeling it's an isolated thing. And uh, In my experience, and I've, I've been fortunate to only really have to declare an emergency for real once. 
uh, my experience, this this behavior by the DFW controller or this or the supervisor, I should say, is in fact an anomaly. Um, uh, but anytime one of our listeners or anybody else might find themselves in a situation where they have to declare a for real emergency, all you have to do is is declare it, make sure it's communicated to ATC, and uh, um, do what you need to do. Uh, in one situation, the situation I'm speaking of, uh, I was cleared to land on a specific runway, and I didn't really have a chance to, to get into it with them, but I was going to land any damn where I wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't a matter of <clears throat> which runway or anything else. If they had to reposition the equipment or, or whatever, that was their problem, not mine. Uh, you're, the, you're the guy in charge. It's your butt in the sling. Um, the controller's chair is not moving nearly as fast as yours is. Right. That's right. And... Uh you know, there's a lot of forgiveness that goes with this uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of whatever rules that you may worry about that you're you're about to violate uh, in in the uh, in the attempt to get your butt back on the ground alive and intact in a tight situation. So, uh, you know, to, it's not something as everybody says to be done lightly. But uh, once you utter those words, uh, then the world changes. And it's supposed to change in your favor. Yeah. It's a good thing to have in your bag. And, uh, you know, anyways, so that's maybe that's it. Everything to be said about that particular subject. Um, so, in well, actually, actually, I think that the, the, some of the final chapters on this have not yet been written. I can't yeah, say true. a whole lot more about it than that. But uh, uh, I keep I hear some things through the grapevine that maybe this one's not over with yet. Oh, really? All right. Yeah. Yeah, and and I might add one more thing, which is don't don't be afraid to use the word mayday either. Exactly, it jumps up and it gets everybody's attention. Mm-hmm. Don't be subtle. If you've got a problem, yeah. If if you have a good faith belief that you're in danger, you are entitled to use these terms and get this service. And uh, nice and firmly three times, and by the time you get to the end of the third mayday. Uh, everybody within earshot on the frequency is going to be on your side. Yeah, and one, Nobody one, one, misses it. Right. One other point, too, is that uh, um, very rarely will there even be someone asking you a detailed question about what happened. In my example, uh, I had a very rough, uh, I had a partial engine failure, uh, put the airplane down without a scratch, um, talked to uh, the airport uh, management uh, talk to the uh, fire rescue personnel, talk to the controllers, and they're like, hey, good job, thank you. Do I have any paperwork to fill out? Nope, you're good to go. Nope, that's and right. Have a great day. Yeah. You know, be sure and clean the seats, but, uh, um, you know, have a great day. <laughs> clean the seats, change the underwear, new jeans, right. and you're off and running. We're starting to, as usual, run out of our allotted time here. I'm going to start jumping around on our oh, list a little no. bit. Yeah. Um, so let's see now. There was a little item in the news that they think maybe they figured out why all those windshields cracked in Denver. Um, sandblasting. Uh, yeah, it was sandblasting. Who would have thought, right? Um, Man. Dave, what, what was the story? Well, apparently uh, they, the uh, NTSB investigators did some surface analysis of a bunch of these windshields that came out of the uh, airplanes at Denver and found that uh, they had grains of sand uh, apparently picked up from sand 
spread on the runways for traction, traction purposes. The wind, which was at times blowing in excess of 50 knots, picked it up, pitted the windshields, and with the extreme cold temperatures, that started the cracking process. Yeah. Uh, it happened to several airplanes on the ramp, several airplanes in the pattern, and inexplicably, and the NTSB doesn't have an explanation for this one, one aircraft at 19,000 feet. So, and not to point fingers that, that this should have been caught, but how is this something we can catch in pre-flight? Uh, it, it is yes, but well, a sandstorm now. So, I mean, is there just you know, is there any lesson to be learned here, or is it just like you know, one of the adventures of flying? Park with your tail into the wind. <laughs> I see. Luck on that. That's a good all-purpose life lesson, David. I think, but anyways. <laughs> Jack, yeah. Halt. I have to go. I've timed out. You have timed out. Okay. Well, Amy, Amy's got to leave us a little bit early here. Um, so uh, we're going to say goodbye. Uh, thank you for being Amy, with us. Thank you. And hopefully, it, it won't be quite. You, Amy. It won't be quite as long before you're able to, or before we're smart enough to invite you back. So, uh, thank you very much, and uh, we'll talk to you next time, Amy. Thanks. It was Thanks, a pleasure. Amy. Thanks again, guys. Right, Talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye bye. So, uh, a couple more, a couple more quick items here. Um, I did get a nice email from uh, uh, Dave, who is one of the uh, producers and hosts of Skydive Radio, a podcast uh, about uh, an aviation podcast specifically about skydiving. Um, and he he sent us a nice little uh, uh, few words about how he was enjoying our podcast, and then told us a little bit about his. Um, I actually, um, when I when we started doing our podcast, I was listening to lots and lots of aviation podcasts and I did sample theirs and it was pretty cool but I'm not a skydiver so uh, um, I didn't keep up with it but uh, let me just read you a few words from their website uh, uh, they write about themselves they say we are the very first podcast strictly dedicated to the fascinating sport of skydiving our weekly 40 minute or so discussions cover a wide variety of topics uh, we discuss news events drop zones policies memorable jumps history and any other hot topic related to skydiving we have product reviews and also hold conversations with well-known skydivers in all disciplines of the sport. So if you're at all interested in skydiving um, or, in fact, are a skydiver, you should check out uh, Skydive Radio, the podcast. Uh, jump in, jump into their podcast. Now, they've been doing it since August of 2005. They've got about 80 episodes in the can, so there's a lot of information there. If you go to their website, um, wow. the, you, there's a lot of interesting past stuff there. Um, the, and their, their website is www.skydiveradio.com. So skydive radio is one word, and uh, I don't know about you, Jeb, but Dave, Dave, you're you've done had some jumps. I made ten sport jumps back in the mid '70s, so that'd be like over 30 years ago now. Uh, when I was uh, in in college, we had a small college uh, 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 skydiving club at Indiana University Southeast. Uh, I made five jumps out of a uh, Cessna 182 at the Southern Indiana Skydiving Center. And then I made uh, uh, several more at DeLand and Zephyr Hill, Florida, out of C-47. Uh, much easier. But after 10 jumps, uh, the uh, the whole experience to me uh, still came across as the aviation equivalent of the sex quickie. And I was looking for something <laughs> a little bit longer. Uh, and uh, well, you just weren't doing it right, Dave. That's all. Maybe, maybe that was it. I just wasn't doing it right. I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't waving my butt right. But uh, from there, I moved to hang gliding, and 
once my hang gliding flights got to be longer than the entire experience of my skydiving jumps, that is, longer than it took to climb to altitude, get out the door, free fall, open the canopy, land, pack, and do it again, once my hang gliding got into that territory, uh, I never looked back. How about you, Jeb? Do you ever try it? Never have. Uh, I, I've thought about it, just never really had the opportunity. Uh, um I, I don't know. I, there's something, you know, obviously the old joke about why would anyone jump out of a perfectly good airplane? Yeah. But I, uh, I haven't tried it, does, it either. It, it does sound intriguing. There's a lot of uh, opportunities in this local area to, to do so. Um, I uh, just have never really availed myself of the opportunity. Yeah. See, it's, I, I it's think. It's a rush like nothing else you'll ever do. I would imagine. I, you know, see, for me, though, it, is. Rush, the, see, I get enough rushes and, and stuff I normally do every day. So that's right. I'm not, not sure I need another not, one. Not, not like this one, brother. Not like this one. See, that's the thing. I don't think I, I, I could. I don't think I literally could do it. I don't believe that I could take the step out of the airplane. I, because, see, strangely enough. Well, I have people to push. Yeah, well, I know. That may be what would be required. <laughs> I, I'm actually afraid of heights, uh, in, in a fashion. Um, I and so the idea of of stepping off the edge, you know. Likewise, things like bungee jumping have never appealed because yeah. I just yeah. I can't imagine taking that step. And uh, but well, the having, hard, hardest part of the early jumps was climbing out of the one one eighty two door to stand on that uh, little wheel step on the uh, on the gear strut. Oh, and Fox truck, Mike. Strut. I'm not. Yeah, hold, holding on to the the outside of the airplane at, at some altitude and airspeed is not exactly what I would like but to uh, I can engage still, in. I can still see my jump master grinning like a Cheshire cat, pats me on the helmet and says, go. You know, you don't mm-hmm. hear him, but you know that's what the lips yeah. are saying. And letting go of that thing and going, big mistake! <laughs> <laughs> see, well, if you're, if you're going to park me hanging on the outside of an airplane, you're going to have to do sheet metal work afterwards because my <laughs> my fingerprints are going to be embedded in the fuselage. Well, well there too. Was this, there was this really intense, uh, oh my God, I've just stepped into an elevator shaft feeling uh-huh. uh, <laughs> that lasted about four or five seconds. Then there's the welcome relief of the opening shock of the canopy, and of course they teach you to look up and make sure that the canopy's whole and intact. You don't have any May Wests or splits or anything like that. And for a couple of minutes after that point, it's like you're not moving at all. Mm-hmm. You're just suspended from a skyhook with one of the most phenomenal views in the world. And there's very little noise, very little wind noise, uh, until the until you get down under, you know, 500 feet or so, and ground rush becomes apparent, and then it seems like, oh my God, it's coming up fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, to our new friend Dave from Skydive Radio, I'm afraid we haven't done a very good job of promoting the sport of skydiving. <laughs> but, but I do know for a fact from watching folks who do this and from reading about it that that uh, people who yeah. love skydiving love skydiving, and yeah. uh, um, and if you are one of those folks, uh, I encourage you to check out Skydive Radio, the podcast uh, at Skydive. It, it's something I think every pilot ought to do once, at least, to give themselves the exposure to what it's like to go out the door. Because, you know, you never know. You might be in an aerobatic airplane one day. You might decide to take a little uh, uh, unusual attitude recovery instruction where they strap a flat pack on your butt and put you in the seat uh, in an airplane with a pop-off door and say, you, you're probably not going to need this, but in case you do. 
And yeah. then if that time does come, you know, uh, God forbid, then when yeah. you go out the door, it's not your first time. That, that's a situation where on-the-job training is probably not the best uh, solution. Yeah, really. Well, for most of my hang gliding career, uh, most of my hang gliding experience, I wore a chest pack hand-deployed parachute because mm. parachutes for hang gliders came along the second year that I flew hang gliders. And uh, a couple of times a year, I would practice on a hang gliding simulator actually deploying my hand pack parachute. And it was really comforting knowing that, A, the parachute worked from the practice deployments, but B, knowing that I'd been through this, you know, breathtaking freefall situation before, and that if push came to shove, I could keep my head long enough to get that canopy out of the bag. Matter of fact, my only worry was that I'd rip the whole pack off my chest in a rush to get rid of the parachute. <laughs> so it, it's definitely worth something, to, uh, you know, worth trying out. Uh, the nice thing about skydiving these days is that most drop zones, uh, and you can learn more about this on skydiveradio.com, but most drop zones can get you through a basic uh, uh, static line jump instruction process in a day. And other places have tandem jump operations where you go up with an instructor, uh, you're strapped together, and you're going to come down under one canopy together. And they can do that in even less time. So it doesn't take quite the time commitment uh, and quite the financial commitment to uh, experience skydiving that uh, learning to fly an airplane or a hang glider does. Yeah, Definitely worth it. Well, we're definitely running out of time here. Uh, any final words? Any last uh, little small items you guys want to throw in here before Spring we finish? Spring is coming to Northern Virginia. Uh, it's uh, slowly trying to work its way into the fabric of our lives. Uh, I am very much looking forward to it. This has been a dreary winter. It has been. You guys seem to have maybe gotten a worse winter down there than we did up here in New England. I mean, maybe not, <laughs> maybe not in terms of raw temperature, but in terms of precipitation. In terms of precipitation, it's it's just been... Uh, the problem was is is we started out with a very very mild winter. Uh, we had very little snow. There were several warm days, even as late as uh, the Christmas holidays. And then it just kind of giving oh, us had, the giving us the impression that maybe we weren't going to have a winter. Here. Yeah, we had record we had record highs in December and January yeah, both. Yeah, yeah. So here we are. You know, the latter part of January and, and most of February has been just dreary and cold and uh, uh, just miserable for the most part, yeah. all things considered. Uh, but uh, the last couple of days have been relatively warm and sunny. No, no uh, way in the world some... do I believe it's over yet. No, no, it's it's too early. Uh, yeah. uh, beware the Ides of March is is uh, relevant in aviation as well as in uh, 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 drama. So, uh, but we are getting we are getting closer and closer to the real beginning of spring, which of course is sun and fun down in Lakeland, Florida. And uh, dun, dun, dun. just a little reminder to everyone that uh, uncontrolled airspace is headed that way, and that we're going to be down there. We haven't quite figured out exactly what our presence. Yeah, that's right. What our presence is going to be. We're going to record a podcast down there. Hopefully, um, in a situation where we can invite everyone to come and join us when we record it. Um, and that should be around episode number 25, uh, probably on Wednesday or Thursday of, uh, of Sun and Fun Week is uh, when we'll record it. And stay tuned for more information on how you can join us for that. Uh, other last words? Well, just a quick call out to uh, Rocky Lee out in California, uh, about to retire uh, Coast Guard officer, uh, aviator, 
who uh, this past weekend was presented the keys to AOPA's latest sweepstakes airplane, a completely redone uh, Cherokee uh, 6. Uh, you know, we hear, you know, the AOPA's done this about 15 times now, I think. And uh, not all the prize winners have been able to uh, enjoy their prize to the degree we expect uh, uh, Mr. Lee to in his retirement. But I uh, can't think of a better uh, honor for a fellow that served his country for 20 years, put himself in harm's way, uh, flown in Alaska and on West Co- West Coast, flown helicopters, search and rescue and recovery. And uh, he's he's got uh, children who fly. He's got a wife and, uh, and, and children who like to travel, a daughter with her pilot's license going off to college in Colorado. Uh, what a great retirement president. Congratulations, sir. And uh, we hope you have a long and happy association with it in with the Cherokee Six and yeah. you and your family. Yeah. What what Dave said couldn't say it couldn't say it better. That's great. Jeb, anything else? Nope. Let's okay. Get out of here. Let's get out of here. Well, I want to thank uh, everyone. Thanks to Amy Laboda. Amy, who by the way, Amy warned us early on uh, going in that that there was a family obligation that might um, cause her to be called away. So she did have to leave us a little bit early, but uh, we we were thrilled to have her with us and uh, look forward to always her. great to have Amy on board. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can learn more about Amy and her work um, at uh, org slash magazine. That's whiskeyalphaindia.org slash magazine. That's her uh, her uh, aviation for women magazine. And uh, thanks to uh, Jeb. Jeb, we can learn more about Jeb and your work at uh, aviationsafetymagazine.com, also avweb.com, and now at Jeb Bur- Jeb, yeah. Jeb Burnside.com. We finally dragged him kicking and screaming into the 21st century here. How about that? So you can go to... Uh, <laughs> JebBurnside.com and uh, get the kind of uh, executive summary of uh, Jeb and his work. And, and of course, Dave at uh, DaveHigdon.com. And I'm Jack Hodgson at JackHodgson.com. And of course, you can visit us all, read the blog, and uh, get the listener line number and get our email addresses at UncontrolledAirspace.com. Keep so, those cards and letters coming in, folks. A- absolutely. Thanks to everyone. Have a safe flying weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you again next time. You can email your suggestions and feedback about this podcast to podcast at uncontrolledairspace.com. Looking fine and fooling right.